Well, good morning, and I want to welcome those who are just now maybe joining us online, those who are here with us in the room. Glad to have you. Uh, Just wanted to give you a little bit of an update, those of you who were praying for uh, uh, AJ's brother and sister-in-law, baby, it's a girl. Uh, She's here. So uh, Lily, Lily Evelyn Katzberg, six pounds, 11 ounces, 19 and three quarter inches long. So there you go. Uh, and that's what I get for being on the women's prayer text thread. So uh, I, get, I get all the good info. Anyway, so we're really thrilled and, and praise the Lord for a safe delivery. And I'm, I'm sure Grandma is uh, bursting out of her skin right now. So uh, make sure and tell them congratulations if you see them or give Candace a, a call or a text message. And I'm sure she'd be happy to accept uh, for, for that. So anyway... If you've got your Bible or the device you look up Scripture on, go ahead and open or scroll to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which we're calling uh, this series Greatest Sermon Ever. And uh, again, one of Jesus' most well-known sections of teaching. Uh, We're actually today going to finish out chapter 5 and then next week be moving into chapter 6. And so we're really Really excited. This has been a, so far, I've been uh, really moved by, by some things uh, that we have talked about, that we have studied, and I hope that you have as well. Hope the Lord is using it in your heart, in your life, in your family's life. Um, so let's begin uh, by just having a word of prayer, asking the Lord to bless the proclamation of His Word, and then uh, we will we'll get moving. God, thank you so much for this, uh, just this good news of baby, uh, baby Lily being born. We thank you, Jesus, that it was, seemed to be a, a, a quick and a safe uh, delivery via the C-section. Just pray for recovery for mom, uh, connection with baby, and, and God, that you would just help to give them some rest in, in this time of recovery. And God, we just thank you for your provision, uh, for your care for us and uh, for answering the prayers of your people. And God, I just ask that you would, uh, today, that you would clear our minds and our hearts of anything uh, that, is, that is hindering us from listening to your word. If there's anything in us that uh, would distract us, God, I pray you would block it out, that we may focus solely on you during this time. And I pray as I speak, God, that, that these words would, um, would help to explain the meaning of your word, that you would speak through your word, and God, that you would change our hearts because we've spent time in your word together. Father, help me to proclaim the message clearly. I pray that if there is anything that's of just me, you would clear it out, God, that, that you would increase and that I would decrease and that you would be big here today, Jesus. It is for you that we do this. This is about you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this week, as I was reading to prepare, I read Lig and Duncan recount a story about a guy named John Lafayette Gerardo. He's not from around here, all right? John Lafayette Gerardo, he's a Presbyterian minister in the South around the time of the Civil War. Uh, He was a prisoner of war during the war between the states. Ligon's from the South. They call it the war between the states down there. Up here, we just call it the Civil War. Uh, I can say that because my mom lives in Mississippi. She's in the thick of it down there, right? So anyway, during during the—he was a prisoner of war during the war between the states— When he came back to South Carolina to take up his ministry again after the war, he preached a passionate sermon on this passage that we're talking about today, which, spoiler alert, is about loving your neighbor or loving your enemy, more particular. So he preached on loving your neighbor. His youngest son heard that sermon, and he asked his dad questions all the way home, and he continued to ask him really annoying questions around the dinner table. 
Now, if your kids ask you questions about the sermon, you should not describe that as annoying, by the way. That's actually a great thing if they ask you questions, and we encourage that. So uh, anyway, he kept asking him specifics about how the sermon might apply to his own experience. Dad, does this mean that I have to love the bully who beats me up at school? Yes, son. Dad, does this mean that we have to love people who have taken advantage of our family? Yes, son. Dad, does this mean that we have to love the Yankees? Be quiet, son, and eat your dinner. It's hard for all of us to love as God calls us to love. Now, some of you know I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, so I read that as different Yankees than they're talking about. But anyway, uh, today we, we come to one of the most challenging and memorable teachings of Jesus And it was shocking to those who heard it first, and it remains shocking, really, to those of us who read it now. So this morning, Lord willing, my goal is to plumb some of the depths of what the Lord is communicating here and how it must change us as we follow him. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, and we're going to read through verse 48. You can follow along this morning with me. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You... Therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray one more time over the word of the Lord. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. God, thank you for the life-changing power within your word, that it's living and active, that it's uh, inerrant and infallible. God, help us to understand what you would have us do with this in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So before we dive into what Jesus is saying in this passage, I want to first examine what he is not saying in this passage. I know that's a little kind of a weird way to go about it, but I think there's some things we need to clarify. If we come to a a hard passage or a passage that maybe has some things in it that, well, that seems to say something that might contradict something that we see somewhere else, we really need to take a look and see what Jesus is really not saying in this passage. If we're not careful, we might get this twisted, and you guys know my rule, let's not get weird with it, Okay. So we need, we need to look at what it says in context of the entire Bible as well as the positioning of this particular passage within the larger text and the larger teaching of the Sermon on the Mount as well. So the question is, what is Jesus not saying in this passage? What is Jesus not saying in this passage? Well, the first thing that Jesus is not saying in this passage is he is not saying that this passage teaches a works-based salvation. This passage does not teach a works-based salvation. Love for your enemies does not make you a Christian. It does not save you. It does not make you a child of God. Rather, loving your enemies shows, or maybe you could say proves, that you are a child of God. So love for enemies, so if you love your enemies, you're not getting anything out of that. You're not earning any bank in heaven out of that, right? Because salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, okay? And we'll, we'll get back to that here in a little bit. So it's not about, oh, I love my enemies, and so I somehow win God's approval or earn God's approval. No. 
Loving your enemies is proof that you actually are right positionally with God. John Piper puts it like this. Now, someone might take, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, which is what it says there, right? To mean that you must first become a person who loves his enemies before you can be a child of God. But it may also mean love your enemies and so prove yourself to be who you are, a child of God. That is, show you are a child of God by acting the way your father acts. More on this later. If you are his, then his character is in you and you will be inclined to do what he does. God loves his enemies, the evil and the unrighteous, in sending rain and sunshine on them instead of instant judgment, because God could just instantly judge everything, everyone who is evil, all the unclean, instantly, and yet he gives rain and sunshine to them. I thought that was a really, really uh, smart way of, of explaining this, and what he means here is not that we earn it, but that our love for our enemies proves or shows who we belong to. Secondly, uh, a thing that, uh, this is under things Jesus is not saying, uh, he's not agreeing specifically with the Pharisees and scribes the exact way they would have taught this. So in this section, this is really the sixth, the sixth section of what we call the six antitheses in, I know, big words here, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, And so what this is, is Jesus had laid out the Beatitudes and he had told us, he had told them, told his hearers, his followers who were listening to him, that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, And we said there was only one way for that to happen, right? We couldn't do that on our own, but Jesus fulfilled the law and for us to have relationship with him or to be a believer, a follower in him is the only way that we can have his righteousness is the righteousness that I just summed up or that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. The people would have been shocked by that, and I just summed up like three or four weeks of preaching there for you. So uh, if you want more on that, go back and you can listen to the old uh, uh, podcast or the videos on our Facebook page. So they misunderstood the original command, and we've seen this time and time again. Jesus will say, you have heard it said. In other words, you've heard the scribes and the Pharisees, you've heard the religious teachers, the rabbis, whoever, right? You've heard them teach this. You've heard them say this. And we have it here again in this passage as well. It says, you have heard it that it was said. And then he says what they have heard that it was said, right? Here's the problem. They misunderstood that original command. And actually, they'd added to it from their assumptions. Anytime you're adding to the word of God, very, very bad, very, very dangerous. Nowhere in the Old Testament will you find a command to hate your enemy juxtaposed with a command to love your neighbor. So where in the world would they have gotten this assumption? Where, where would these religious leaders have picked this up? Well, first, I want to go to where they got the love your neighbor part. So if you want to flip over there, it's fine. If not, it'll be on the screen. But we're going to go all the way back to Leviticus and chapter 19. I know, uh, just like last week when I brought it up, you guys were really hoping that we'd talk about Leviticus this week. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, Charles Quarles, who I've quoted before, he points out this subtle revision transformed a command about how God's people are to love into a command on whom they are to love. So the point of this command we read in Leviticus was about, was about 
excuse me, was about how they were to love. And the Pharisees and the scribes changed it into who specifically they were to love. It, it narrowed it. It limited it. Then, of course, they added the part about hating the, your enemy in their teaching. But Jesus takes a corrective measure uh, with this teaching and with which not just that they had believed, but also that they had taught others. So they misunderstood the original command. Third, they misunderstood the term neighbor. This is a huge one. They misunderstood the term neighbor. They thought the term neighbor was limited to Israelites like them only. They taught that the Jews were to love other Jews as their neighbor, but that everyone else who was not Jewish was to be regarded as an enemy. And not only did they believe that it was their business to hate their enemies or non-Jews, but they would have possibly gone so far as to believe that it was their duty and their right to hate their enemies. Now, in the ancient world, there was strong animosity or hatred between different people groups, okay? The Jews and the Gentiles, for example, or the Gentiles are non-Jewish people, are the perfect illustration of that. And in the New Testament, we read throughout it, we find about this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, I want to make a statement that, that really rocked my understanding of this. It really rocked my understanding of the scribes and Pharisees, and, and really this passage as well. But here's the statement I want to make. The religious leaders of the day believed they were honoring God by hating others. Let me say that again, because that... That struck me, not just about them, but about today too, okay? The religious leaders of the day believed that they were honoring God by hating others. Do you see how twisted that is? You know, you may say to me, Pastor, but, but Pastor, what about the Old Testament when God told the Jews to wipe out all the other nations in the promised land? Or when we read one of the imprecatory psalms that's asking for bad things to befall their enemies, like in Psalm 69. Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look at Psalm 69 and see what it says and see how that relates. In Psalm 69, verses 22 through 28, it says this, and this is one of those areas that specifically, if you were going to ask me that question, you may ask me that question in reference to this passage. In verse 22 and following, it says, Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment, May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, one could see potentially how they might have made some assumptions from this passage. Punishment upon punishment doesn't seem like something uh, lighthearted, right? However... You cannot simply take one passage of Scripture and develop an entire theology from it. You have to look at it all. And if you read the entire 69th Psalm, you will see that the author's main concern in the passage is actually the honor of God and zeal for the house of the Lord. We have to understand that that in the Old Testament, 
There was a judicial element to these commands and the things that God was doing. There was a a judgmental or judicial command or element to the command based on the nation as a whole, the people as a whole, not necessarily interpersonal relationship. See, he used Israel to exercise judgment on the pagan nations who had rejected God. So the pagan nations had rejected God, and Israel was used by God as a tool of judgment upon them. Now, let me caution you. We have to be very careful assigning to God the same actions and motivations that we see in ourselves. Because if, it's, if we're not careful, we can do what they did and say, well, God told Israel to wipe out those, those people. And if we get it twisted as they had and we bring that into our personal life, then we start to see that we, oh, so I'm justified in doing bad to this evil person or doing evil for, repaying evil for evil. And that's not at all correct. What the religious folks had been doing was taking these judicially minded commands and, and they implied hatred of their personal enemies. And then instead of being uh, judicial, national in level, they'd applied it in their personal everyday lives and interactions. Listen, they were okay and taught and did that they hated people and they used this perceived command as a justification for their hate. They used the perceived command as justifying their hate. I've got to alert you to another danger here because this is pretty huge. It's very dangerous to take something script- that's in Scripture or to take a part of Scripture and try to justify by Scripture the thing that your sinful heart wants to do no matter what. This is common today, so we must be vigilant. Don't have something evil in your heart, something that you want to do, and then try to take Scripture and prove that it's okay or that it's honoring of God to do whatever sinful thing is in your heart. It's a very, very dangerous thing, and we must be vigilant. So what we're needing to look at, though, what we're seeing in Jesus' words is the attitude of a Christian towards other people. They didn't understand the meaning of the word neighbor. They didn't understand that neighbor is not limited to people who live around you. You know, Jesus uh, is, was so good at illustrating things. He actually illustrates this in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lot of you are familiar with this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what, should I, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, stop it. want to justify yourself, that seems like a problem. You might be alerted to that. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wanted to know, who's my neighbor? I want to make sure that I'm loving the person that I'm supposed to be loving. And remember I said a few weeks ago, Jesus just flips their understanding of this on its head. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and, he, and he, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So Jesus' understanding of who our neighbor is was vastly different than these guys who thought, well, just other Jews, other people like me are my neighbor. Okay, and we could say, oh, well, other people who live on my street are my neighbor. This guy was a Samaritan. The priest and the Levite passed by. The people who should have stopped to help, they should have been the ones, mentally you think, well, they're obviously going to stop and help the guy. But no, it was a Samaritan who these Jews considered like a dog. And that was not, like back then, being a dog was not like man's best friend. Okay, that was a dirty thing to call somebody. And he, Jesus is telling this parable of the good Samaritan, the Samaritan being the one who actually stopped and was a neighbor. So here you had someone, people who would have potentially been considered enemies, and he's acting as a neighbor to him. So I think we have to be careful to not make this passage say something that Jesus is not saying. So the next question I think we need to ask is, what is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus saying here? Much as we've seen him do in the last five sections of this larger passage, Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the incomplete teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, in commenting about this passage and how it fits into the, kind of the overall flow of the Sermon on the Mount, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones accurately points out that one thing and one thing only makes a person be able to not strike back when they're struck. One thing and one thing only enables a man or a, or a woman, a person, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give his cloak as well as his coat when it's demanded forcibly from him. Only one thing enables that. First, he must be dead to himself. He must be dead to himself. You can't be seeking after your own interest if you're going to turn the other cheek, if you're going to uh, love someone who has done something evil to you. Secondly, he must be dead to self-interest, not interested in his own gain or his own reward, but dead to, uh, to himself. If I help that person, they might do something else evil to me. Yes, they might. And you have to not concern yourself with that. And third, he must be dead to concern about self. Obviously, this is closely tied to the others. In other words, the only thing that enables a person to love their enemy like this, to be a neighbor, this neighborly love, is if they truly are a child of the king, if they know Jesus. 
So what we said in the first question about what Jesus is not saying, obviously it can't be that you must love your, na- your enemies in order to be a Christian because the only way that you can love your enemies is if you have been bought by the king, if you are a follower of G- King Jesus. But now, Jesus, so that was, you know, from last week's passage about going the extra mile, not retaliating. But here in today's passage, Jesus goes even further than these former passages. And he says that it goes deeper to the point of loving even these enemies of yours. It's not enough, listen, it's not enough merely to not hit them back when they strike you. No, we must have a positive attitude towards them. This is the call and the command of our king. We must think of loving our neighbor. And when we think of loving our neighbor, we must understand that the term neighbor must, requires, okay? The term neighbor must also include our enemies and those who would do evil to us. The term neighbor must also include our enemies and those who do evil to us. Why? Well, because God is like this, so we must be like this. Jesus gives us a couple of illustrations. God gives light to all and gives rain to all. In Matthew 5.45 says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Okay, that was the finishing of that last sentence. Then he says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Lloyd-Jones taught me that God does not differentiate this based on what the person is or what they have done to him. Therefore, because God does that, we must treat others in a way that does not depend on what they are or what they have done to us. If we don't pay attention, it's easy for us to allow the way people treat us or react to us to influence how we treat them. But Jesus calls us to something higher. We're to love them, not for what they might become. Like there is this a really sentimental uh, idea that, well, you know, um, I should love them because they might end up being a friend. But that's not what we're talking about here. It's not motivated by what they might become. It's not motivated by the fact that, well, maybe I'll love them and then they'll you know, somehow psychologically be changed into what I want them to be. No. It's not motivated by that. It's just that we are displaying to them the love of God. Yes, in that, they might come to know Jesus eventually because we've shown them love. Yes, But our call is to display to them the love of God. This is what sets those of us who follow Jesus Christ apart from those in the world who do not. It should be what sets us apart. It's easy to love those who love you and treat uh, treat you well. But it's a much larger ask. Much larger task. To love without discrimination based on someone else's treatment of us. And that sets us apart from people who do not know God as their father. We, we must not make the same mistakes of the scribes and the Pharisees and limit who we define as our neighbor more narrowly than how God would. 
That's a problem. We take terms like neighbor, and then we, we, we define it more narrowly than God would. And it's hard to obey God's commands as his children when we are making a more narrow definition of something than God does. So I think probably here's the million-dollar question. Okay, pastor, I'm supposed to love my enemies. How do we love our enemies? How do we go about that? How do we do that? That's right. That's what we got to figure out, right? So I, need, I know I need to love my enemies. How do I love my enemies? Well, Scripture teaches us what true, real, genuine love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I know we tend to use this as a key verse in weddings, right? You know, the bride, the groom are up there and somebody reads, love is patient, love is kind, right? We tend to use it in that way, but it actually applies to love in general and not merely love between a man and woman in marriage. If, if God wants us to love our enemies, hadn't we better understand what love looks like? We can't limit love to some warm, fuzzy feeling when we see another person or when we think about the person, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses. we're just going to do 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So when you tell me you love someone, my first question to you, theoretically, hypothetically, would be, do you love them the way that God describes love in his word? Do you love them? Are you patient and kind with them? Do you not envy or boast? Are you not arrogant or rude with them? Do you insist on your own way? You're not irritable or resentful? This is starting to sting a little bit in my heart. How about you? Now, if we're not careful, we can make this all sorts of philosophical and look, what some of us need today are just practical ways that we can put this into action. Remember, as those great theologians, DC Talk said, love is a verb. Only like three people in here got that reference, but that's okay. They're actually not great theologians, I'll just tell you also. Uh, But love is a verb. Loving is doing something. It's active. It is not just a feeling. So how do we love our neighbors? Well, what are some practical ways? Number one, speak well of them. How do you love your enemy? How do you love your neighbor? Speak well of them. Don't give in to the temptation to gossip or slander. Okay? It's a real temptation for pastors too. Okay? Don't give in to temptation to gossip or slander about them. Don't share a prayer request as a low-key way to convey that that person is a dirtbag. All right? So many prayer requests end up just being underhanded gossip, right? Kind of don't don't use it as an opportunity to call them a dirtbag. And number three, don't call them a dirtbag. Speak good things about them when you have opportunity to speak good things about them. We all know people, we get opportunities and someone's complaining about someone and it's real easy for us to jump right in because they did something terrible to us, right? 
Don't do that. Instead, speak positive things. Look, I, I was tempted to put this in. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to say it. I don't know if you guys ever, ever heard the whole thing, you know, oh, my mom always said, if you can't say something nice, here's the thing. You probably can say something positive, okay? But maybe to start out with, you just need to stay quiet some, <laughs> some more than you do. That might be a big step for some of us. Find things that you appreciate about them, not backhandedly as we're tempted to, you know. I was really glad he stopped talking, you know, uh, so that, you know, he could go get his work done, (laughs) you know. No, we're not, don't, uh, that's a bad example, but speak, uh, find things you appreciate about them, not backhandedly. And lastly, don't do the passive-aggressive thing. Don't do the passive-aggressive thing where you make a comment and it's really you trying to get a jab in without them realizing that you got a jab in and then afterwards, you know. This is just, I mean, and I understand this is really basic, really practical stuff, but, but if we really want to love our enemies, we want to display the love of God to them, we've got to look at how God acts towards his enemies. More on that in a minute. Number two. Do good to them. Do good to them. Greet them. Serve them. That lady's behind you in the line at Starbucks, and uh, she, you know, in the, and you see her in her car back there, and she's the one that, whatever, you know, just you, she just cut you off, and you honked, and she flipped you the bird. Whatever. Okay? It's real practical, right? She's behind you at Starbucks. Although if she cut you off, she'd probably be in front of you. But anyway, let's not, let's not dwell on that part. She's behind you. She's behind you. Serve her. Pay for her coffee. Okay? Now understand, you've got to be dead to self because she may be bringing coffee back to everyone she works with. But just pay for her order. Well, she's behind you. Serve them. Find ways to bless them. Sacrificially give of yourself to them. Someone who's always working against you at work and they're up against a deadline and you stay late to help them meet their deadline. So just real basic things. Do good to them. Best example I could think of this, aside from the Good Samaritan, but I already used that as an illustration, right? Uh, the best example was a few years ago, um, Chick-fil-A came under some f- fire from uh, the LGBT community. Um, and Chick-fil-A, if you know or don't know, is a Christian company. It stands for Christian biblical ideas of mar- and understandings of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And so Chick-fil-A got protested. They had Chick-fil-A Day, right, where, where all of these, uh, these people who were angry at Chick-fil-A for standing for, for the Bible... Um, we're going to show up and protest. And so there was lines out. There was another Chick-fil-A day where all the Christians went and ate Chick-fil-A. But that's a whole other thing. But this day, all these protesters showed up to protest Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A had their workers take them free lemonade. <laughs> so they're there to protest, to complain, to try and get them to shut down, to ban them, to have people, whatever. And they responded by serving them. I thought, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. When people are standing around protesting, 
where we would be willing to take them pizza? You know, people who are trying to do us ill, will we be willing to serve them? To love our enemies. And thirdly, and lastly, pray for them. Jesus tells us to pray for those who are persecuting us. Pray for them. I want to tell you something. It is very, very difficult to hate someone that you are praying for. Because if you will get on your knees or whatever, sit in your chair, wherever you pray, and pray for that person, take that person before the Lord in prayer, and not, God, please wipe them out. Not that prayer, okay? Not that prayer. But you will pray for the person, it will be very difficult to hate them. My grandfather, Papa, Papa Cannon, Ace as, as people called him, um, he told the story to me once of this guy that was in his, I think he was in his uh, uh, experimental air, aircraft association. My papa was a pilot and pretty amazing dude. But anyway, uh, he had this story about this guy that he just could not stand. And that guy always wanted, was, ended up wanting to be around papa probably because papa was, was really cool. Okay? And he just couldn't stand this guy. And my grandpa didn't really mince words. Papa didn't mince words very much. All right? And uh, so he started praying for this guy. And he said it was really weird because pretty soon he couldn't get enough of the guy. He just wanted to see him and wanted to be around him. And, and it was, he had, he had prayed for him. I don't want to get overly sentimental about that. I don't want to get us over, but, but just, I mean, try it. You got somebody you don't like, start praying for them. See what happens. See what happens. See, the thing is, it's not so much about God changing their heart as much as it is him changing your heart towards them. And here's why we do this. I alluded to this earlier. This is exactly the way that God treated you when you were his enemy. Flip over to Romans chapter 5. I want to show you something. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says this. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son... Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus gave his life on the cross, literally died for his enemies, us. We were stuck and caught and trapped and in chains to the bondage of sin in our lives, that not just the things we do, but our very nature. And Jesus loved us. God the Father loved us. And God the Son, Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, came to earth, lived a perfect, law-fulfilling life, never sinned, and willingly gave his life, dying a criminal's death, in the place for people who were his enemies. As a substitute, as a sacrifice, taking on the wrath of God that we, that judgment that we so richly deserved and took it upon himself on our behalf 
so that we would no longer be enemies, but adopted into the family of God, so that we can in turn love our enemies. This is, it's the gospel, right? It's good news. It's phenomenal news. I don't know about you, but your worst enemy that you can think of, the person that you have had the most enmity with in your life, okay, I am just going to go out on a limb and say you probably didn't invite them over for Thanksgiving dinner, especially not during COVID, but you probably didn't invite them over for Thanksgiving dinner, right? Do you understand this is like being an enemy towards God, living our lives with a hatred of God, and God says, no, I want to make you my family. And to do so, the son gave his very life. And three days later, rose from the grave by the power of God, which proved that the sacrifice was accepted, and therefore we could be adopted into the family. We could be children of God. We could have his righteousness, Jesus' right standing before God, put on our account so that we could, in turn, be able to love our enemies, love our neighbors. We're still fallible, right? We're still human. Sin natures at war with the Spirit living inside those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And we'll never, like, we're supposed to try and be like Him, to live like Him. We're not going to attain that perfection until we hit eternity. But we are supposed to live as our our old brother Jesus, our, we're, it says we're joint heirs with him. We've been adopted in the family of God. We're supposed to live as Jesus lived. And Jesus is the greatest example, better than the Good Samaritan, better than Chick-fil-A, okay? Jesus is way better than Chick-fil-A, I know. I know people love Chick-fil-A, but Jesus is way better, all right? He is the best example of what it means to love your enemies. Because not only did he give his life for his friends, but he gave his life for those who were at war against him. If I could have our musicians come forward at this time, we're going to sing one final song, and I want to uh, I want to say a couple of things as they're coming forward. Your enemy is your neighbor, and loving your enemies shows the world that God is your father. Loving our enemies is inseparately connected. You can't pull them apart. It's connected to humility. It's connected to humility. In his book, uh, Revitalize, uh, Andy Davis gives uh, some ideas, some reasons, some reasons to be humble towards our opponents or our enemies. And I just wanted to close with a few of those. I'm not going to go through all of them. And he gives scripture references here. I'm not going to read all the scripture references for these, but if you want them afterwards, I, I'm happy to send them to you. The first one, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because we are sinners too. Third, because God is motivated to fight for those who do not fight for themselves. Fifth, because we can't tell the wheat from the weeds. We, we ourselves can't tell who's going to end up in the family of God and who's not. Only God can tell that. 
You are not the issue. God's glory is the issue. We have to be dead to ourselves and humble about who we are. A humble response to attacks will motivate church members to join you. Your enemies, number eight, your enemies might be right about something. And we have to be humble enough to look at that. Humility will adorn the gospel for outsiders to see. And suffering well grows you in Christ-likeness. Would you stand up with me? I'm going to pray. And I just want to, I just want to invite you during this time as, as we sing. Uh, if you want to respond by just singing out, belting out the words of the song and worshiping, uh, then you do that. If God has spoken to your heart through his word and you maybe have realized that there's somebody in your life who uh, you've not been loving because of a way they've been to you or something, and you just need to, I would just invite you to repent. Believe that the, the same Jesus who died for all of your sins died for those sins too. And there's not anything that you've got going on that's too big for him. There's not anything going on in your life where he's gonna uh, say that that's too much. You've gone too far. And so I would just call you to repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news that he died in your place as a sacrifice to cover all your sin and, and exchanges the, the, the wrath of God that, he, that you were supposed to get and gives you his righteousness. And, and if you're standing there and you say, hey, Pastor Cal, I, like, I believe that, I trusted Jesus, I've been a Christian for a long time, then I would just ask you, seek ways, seek ways, ask God for to show you ways that you can love your neighbor better, that you can reflect his glory more, that you can show more people the truth of who you belong to. That will end up breeding gospel conversations in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for those who have gathered here to worship your name. And Father, right now I know your word has gone out. And God, now we respond. Will we say yes, Lord, and trust it that it is right and true and go and live likewise? Or will we say no or simply sit complacent and do nothing about it? Help us to trust you, to take you at your word, to build our lives around the truth of the gospel that, no, we're never going to be perfect at this, this side of eternity. But help us to reflect your love better to a watching world. And may the community of Dixon and the surrounding areas be different because your people loved in your way. Change our hearts, oh God. In Jesus' name I pray.